God in 1 Samuel chapter 17. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And uh, so we can trust him to be just as good in our lives. 1 Samuel chapter 17. And uh, we'll begin reading at verse 20. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, and took the things, and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and came and greeted his brothers. Then, as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them, and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. And David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, Why did you come down here? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Now when the words which David heard uh, spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. Then Saul, David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant David, excuse me, your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the instructions that it gives, whether it's poetry, history, prophecy, whatever uh, uh, part of your scripture it is. And we pray that as we bow our hearts before you and listen to your word, Father, that that word would transform us and cause us to grow from faith to faith. Anoint me as your messenger, and I pray that you would uh, enable the word, uh, however uh, weakly it may be spoken, to be quickened to the hearts of your people and uh, build them up in your most holy faith. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> a year and a half ago, I uh, shared the story that Ken Davis told of the time that he was a uh, substitute teacher at a uh, phys physics class in the university. He was uh, uh, working out the equations on the way in which friction and gravity work on a pendulum swing and uh, constantly decrease the, the amount uh, that the pendulum returns. And uh, after doing the equations, he actually did a pendulum thing where they had calculated the friction and everything, and he marked all of the decreasing uh, range of the pendulum until it rested in the middle. And he said, okay, it's pretty clear. Everybody here believe in the pendulum, law of the pendulum. 
come on, you guys believe in it, right? And they all raised their hands, and, and, uh, and even the teacher raised his hand. Then he said, okay, for our next experiment, I'd like uh, to ask the teacher if he would uh, help out, if it's okay with you. And he said, sure. He came up and pushed uh, a table against the wall, and he had the teacher stand up on the table with his head pressed against the wall. He says, make sure your head is touching the back of the wall, and you'll be perfectly safe. And he got this 250-pound pendulum that was already hanging from the ceiling, brought it up uh, just a fraction of an inch from his nose, not touching his nose. And uh, he said, sir, you believe this law is true, right? And uh, the report says there was a long pause. Huge beads of sweat formed on his upper lip. And then weakly he nodded and whispered, yes. I released the pendulum. It made a swishing sound as it arced across the room. At the far end of its swing, it paused momentarily and started back. <laughs> I never saw a man move so fast in my life. <laughs> he literally dived from the table. Deftly stepping around the still-swinging pendulum, I asked the class, does he believe in the law of the pendulum? The students unanimously answered, no. <laughs> and I think we all recognize there is a difference between academically believing something and really believing it, having faith out there in real life. Now, I'm sure all of these Israelites, if you had asked them, do you believe that Jehovah God can take on the Philistines, they'd all say, yeah, of course. But as soon as uh, Goliath comes out, they metaphorically dive off the table. Now, before we point the finger at them and, and, uh, and uh, think, well, that's terrible, I think we need to recognize that what they did is more natural than what David did. And I think we'd have to recognize that every one of us has had times in our lives where we avoid what God has called us to do, our duty that Gary was talking about, because we lack faith. I mean, this is the most natural thing uh, for us to do. If you come up with a 9-foot, 11 inch dude, you know, you're probably going to freak out too if he's got a spear aimed at you. Um, It's just very natural. And there are too many sermons that apply the David and Goliath story in a way where it wants us to take on unrealistic uh, situations where the odds are against us, but fails to ask, has God commanded us to take on those things? They're they're over-applying the story in our lives. So before we even get into the story, what I want to do in this introduction is I want to analyze what is it that gave David this incredible faith here. Uh, There's a big difference between faith and presumption, and I've seen a lot of people go out and hurt themselves because they want to be like David, you know? They go out and they tackle some big thing and they get busted, and they wonder, where has God been, you know? Why is he... Well, they've not grounded their faith in the Scriptures. You see, faith is a gift of God. Every example of faith in our lives as we grow. It's a gift of God. God gives the faith, but he only gives it as he takes the scriptures and quickens those scriptures uh, to our hearts. Now, when we look at David, we say, wow, that's an incredible faith. Not a small faith, it's a giant faith. Verse 37, for example, moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Now, how could David be so confident of that? I mean, there have been men of faith that have been killed. Hebrews 11 talks about that, right? So how could David be absolutely confident he was going to make it through the crisis of this day? Well, there are two things that gave him this absolute confidence, and the first is Scripture. Faith 
is founded upon Scripture. Scripture is the foundation for faith, and I believe David was founding his faith on God's sure prophetic revelation. There was information that God had already given to David that could make him confident that he would make it through this battle. Now, you know, God can say something like that and a person still be fearful and trembling, but there was something that made this not presumption. First of all, in chapter 16, David was promised by prophetic revelation, by inspiration, that he would be a king over Israel, that he would succeed Saul. So if he gets killed on this day... God proves to be a liar. He knows God is not a liar. He knows he cannot be killed. He's invincible, at least until he's ruled as a king for one day. You know, he knows he cannot die. Now, you've not been given a promise like that. You don't know for sure that you're going to make it through today. You could step off a curb later on this day and be hit by a car. So you don't have that promise, and there could be ways in which you would be presumptuous to go into a place and say, I'm invincible. You know, nothing's going to kill me. Uh, But God has given you promises. He's given you commands. He's given you scriptures that are just as real for you that you can found your faith upon. You can have just as great a faith as David did, but maybe in a different uh, specific direction than what he was uh, engaged in. And so I think it's just wrong for people to say, you know, because David did this, any one of us ought to be able to go out and arm wrestle, you know, any of the, uh, you know, Nebraska football players. Maybe after yesterday's showing, you might be able to do it a bit better, but uh, maybe for a couple seconds. But uh, that's presumption. That's presumption. What is faith? Faith is grounded on the Scripture. There were some other Scriptures that I've included in your outline there where David could have real confidence... For example, some of those uh, scriptures I've given there, God is commanding the Israelites to completely rid the land of all of its inhabitants, including the Philistines. So, he can have an absolute confidence, this is God's will. I need to go out and do it, and I am pleasing in God's sight when I do it. Now, God's not given you that specific command. That's not standing law. There are other laws that God's given you, right, that you can base your face upon. But anytime God gives you a command, you can have the faith to follow it and not worry about the consequences. I am pleasing in God's sight when I'm following this command. Now, God also followed up those commands with promises that they would be successful if they would only believe in Him. And so that's an added dimension to their faith. And then third, in those uh, passages, He said, I don't want you ever making a covenant with the Philistines like they had earlier. You know, because they were too powerful, they went ahead and put themselves under the domination. He says, don't ever make a... uh, You cannot be in covenant with them. You cannot submit to the Philistines. This is a perpetual command to war against them. So those are are a, a series of scriptures that God's Spirit could use to quicken faith within him. Even if he had never been promised that he would be a king, that he would survive this day, he could have had the faith to go out after Goliath. And the reason I say that uh, they were certainly sufficient is that uh, an identical faith to David's was stirred up in Jonathan and his armor bearer in chapter 14. Okay, now Jonathan did not have any promise that he was going to survive that day. And yet he looked at those commands, those promises, and uh, he realized, look, I can go out in confidence that the Lord is pleased with what I am doing. And he said, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So that's Jonathan. He has exactly the same faith. 
Now, there is one more scripture I want to highlight for you that could have been something that really stirred up David's faith. Uh, There are a lot of scholars who think Psalm 144 was written on this day, probably even before he came here. Psalm 144. I'm convinced of it, uh, so I've put it at the bottom of my chapter there. Now, there are other scholars who say, no way, it can't be Psalm uh, written at this point. It's got to be written at the end of David's life because Psalm 144 quotes from several other of David's psalms, which were later than this. And these guys respond, well, how do you know that Psalm 144 is quoting from them? How do you know that they're not quoting from Psalm 144? That's a pure assumption. Uh, It could go either direction. Now, here's the reason why some scholars believe that it was written at this point. The ancient Hebrew Targums, those are the commentaries when Israel was cast out into Babylon and they continued to live there for many, many uh, centuries. Those uh, commentators, they make it very explicit that tradition had held that the sword that David is confident he is going to be spared from in verse 10 is the sword of Goliath. Secondly, all of the ancient translations of the Hebrew have this at their title. And these are like the Septuagint, the Ethiopian, the Arabic, the Vulgate. They have this as the title. A Psalm of David against Goliath. Okay? Now, that's not a slam-dunk argument in favor of this, but I think the weight of the evidence internally as well as externally says this is where this was written. Now, if that's true... There are incredible things in this, in this psalm which would have stirred up his faith. A, a confidence, a promise that he can take on the mighty. Uh, a confidence that God will train my fingers for battle. There's all kinds of statements and promises there that would have stirred up faith. It's certainly a psalm that has stirred up my faith. Now here's the point. If you want to grow in faith, you have got to daily be affirming the promises and the commandments of scriptures upon your lips. That's what God uses to stir up boldness and to stir up faith. Uh, tell yourself daily if you uh, are struggling with fear, I will not fear. Cowardice is no longer a part of my identity. That old identity that cruci- was crucified with Jesus Christ on the cross. I'm rejecting that. Instead, I will say with David, in God I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? Now, that was an affirmation that David put up on his lips several times in the next two years. For example, uh, Psalm 56, verse 11. He said, in God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Now, if you read the title of that psalm and you look at the place where he was at, at Gath, you realize David was scared to death. (laughs) So how come he's saying, I will not fear? He felt the fear, but what he was doing is he was saying, I reject those feelings. I reject my old identity with Adam. I'm not going to allow that to define my life. Instead, I will. He's making affirmations, promises, declarations. I will not fear. I will put my trust in God alone. And David became a model to many saints in years to come. For example, Mordecai, the same Mordecai of um, uh, the book of Esther who wrote Psalm 118, he borrows this language because he was fearful, and he says, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's Psalm 118, verse 6. And you might think, well, that's fine for David, that's fine for Mordecai, but how can I do that? How do I know I can do that? Because you're commanded to do it over and over in the Scripture. Let me just give you one example. Hebrews 13, 
5 through 6 says, when you're struggling with fear, which the, 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 the people he was writing to were very fearful. When you're struggling with fear, lack of boldness, you have got to put these affirmations of Scripture upon your lips. So it says, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a quote from Joshua. And then he gives the conclusion. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? He's quoting from David. He's saying, you've got to do the same thing that David did. You've got to make these affirmations upon your lips. And as you do it, there's something about that step of, of obedience that the Lord takes those affirmations and he stirs up boldness. He stirs up faith uh, within you. Now, I'm not much of a fan of Joyce Meyer, but I think she's on to something in her book, uh, which I've been perusing through, The Secret Power of Speaking God's Word. And I know some people have taken this off in crazy ways, but this is God's Word. This is not making your own affirmations, okay? The Secret Power of Speaking God's Word. What she does in that book is just list Scripture. It's nothing but Scripture. And she's turning these scriptures topically arranged into affirmations of her new identity in Christ. For example, one of the sections is when you're feeling discontented and you want to put on the contentment of Christ, begin affirming verses like this. Psalm 16, verse 6. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Now, you don't feel like it. You feel, oh, man, I really wish I had what the neighbor has. But you're saying, no, I reject that identity. I am identifying with what God's Word says is my new identity, and I'm standing in that. I reject discontentment. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, uh, which says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You can turn that into an affirmation and say, I will stand firm. I am not going to be moved because God says that my labors in the Lord are not in vain. I affirm that by faith today. So you see what I'm talking about? Now, some people, because Word of Faith movement has misused affirmations, I believe that the Lord's going to give me a pink Cadillac. I believe, you know, I'm going to be a millionaire today or whatever the thing. Because they've misused it, people go to the other extreme and they throw off all affirmations. Let me tell you something. You can't throw off affirmations. Everybody inevitably does some affirmation, and usually the affirmations we're constantly making are the discouragements and the lack of faith and all of the things that flow from the old Adam. I can't do it. You know, I can't do what God's... I'm fearful. And you keep saying those things in your mind and you're killing your faith. So you're either making affirmations of the truth of Scripture or you're making affirmations that you have had long years of habit with that flow from the old Adam. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's what we're talking about here. Scripture is the key to growing in faith and to being able to take on the giants of the land. The second thing that gave David his giant faith was that he was filled with the Holy Spirit who is the author of faith, okay? He was anointed by the Spirit. The Spirit was the one who enabled him to kill the bear and to kill the lion. And the Spirit was the one who gave him a faithfulness that we looked at last week in the Protestant work ethic. Chapter 16, verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. 
Okay, he was walking in the Spirit. If you want to have the fruit of the Spirit, you must be in fellowship with the Spirit. He is the giver of faith. Or here's a simple exercise I would encourage you to do. Every day, start off your day by reading to God, even do it out loud. That's the way I do it. Uh, the prayer for the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's the first prayer in the Spiritual Warfare's booklet. And if you don't have that booklet, ask me for it, and we'll try to get you a, a copy of that. But I have had several people say, wow, as they've started praying these scriptural prayers, they have found their faith growing in the Lord. So you've got to ground it in the scripture, pray for the filling of the Spirit. And the reason this is a long introduction is because I think we get ourselves into trouble if we take the story of David and Goliath out of the context of what enabled him to have that faith. So that's the background. <clears throat> now, Last week, we looked at how David's faith was manifested in faithfulness. You know, even the boring day-to-day routines, he was doing it by faith. The Protestant work ethic, he was doing it by faith, and we're not going to get into that. In fact, we're not going to get into points uh, 3, 4, and 5. That's just to give you an idea of how really faith is a subject of this whole chapter. I just want to focus on Roman numeral 2 and show you how David's faith gave him vision. It was a visionary faith that enabled David to see things that other people could not see. Okay, enabled him. Uh, anytime we have this visionary faith, we can, we can have um, confidence when others have fear. Uh, we can have uh, uh, fear of God when others don't even recognize God in the situation. So it's enabling us to see where others cannot see. Let's just take a look, first of all, at verses 22 through 23. David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. I want you to notice that David is attracted to the culture wars rather than running away from those culture wars. Last week we saw that there were six ways in which Christians have compromised their approach to culture. You know, the liberal adoption of culture, there's the synthesis of culture, there's escape from culture, but various ways in which the church has refused to engage Goliath, okay? Contrasting that with the biblical way where we're seeking to transform every area of life and bring it under the lordship of King Jesus. Well, David can hardly wait to get to the front of the battle lines. He's attracted. He wants to know what's going on. He, he's a passionate about seeing uh, Christ's glory lifted up. And he thinks these battles, there's no reason why Israel ought not to be able to win these battles. He's convinced of that despite 40 days of stalemate that Israel has experienced in verse 16. Despite the impossible odds of this giant in verse 23. Despite the demoralization of the army in verse 24. Okay, This is the kind of vision that we need to be praying. Lord, please restore this to the church of Jesus Christ. I am convinced that the church regains this kind of a visionary faith. There isn't any humanism that will be able to stand up to it. So we need to pray, Lord, rekindle this within your people. Because we're still in the majority in, in, in America, but we have no faith. And if you have no faith, you've got no vision of what God can accomplish. If you're not driven by vision, you're, you're going to be adapting or compromising. You're going to be doing something different than engaging as God calls us to engage the giants of the land. 
And so this vision gave David a vision to run towards the culture wars rather than away from them. Second thing that it did was to keep David from being intimidated by Goliath. Now, two weeks ago, we saw the enormous size and strength of Goliath. And in verse 24, we see the impact that this had upon Israel and Saul. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. Reminds me of the report that the ten spies gave in the book of Numbers. They had giants too. And they didn't deny that God's word was true when God says, this is a wonderful land. They said, it's an incredible land. I mean, look at all the fruit we're bringing. Look at all the, the, the produce. This is an incredible land, but we can't take it because of all the giants. We are as grasshoppers in their sight. And Joshua and Caleb tried to persuade the people and say, no, that's not the case. Um, they said, let us go up at once and take possession for we are well able to overcome them. Uh, they were not intimidated by the giants. In fact, as far as Joshua and Caleb were concerned, the giants were grasshoppers in God's sight. Okay, They're turning the grasshopper theology upside down. Well, that's what David is doing here. And I think too many Christians in our century have a grasshopper theology. They, they, just, they know what the biblical vision is. Uh, that just can't possibly be what the vision could. It just doesn't seem like a possible vision. Well, if you're not living by faith, the biblical vision is impossible. It doesn't seem realistic. And so they grow disheartened and they grow weary. In fact, sometimes, just like the ten spies, roused up the people to almost stone Joshua and Caleb. I mean, here Joshua and Caleb are doing a good thing. We want you guys to enter into your inheritance. And they almost stone Joshua and Caleb. The Puritans, the visionaries of our day, are attacked by fellow Christians for being too triumphalistic, you know, being too visionary. And, uh, and David just didn't buy into that at all. He was not intimidated by Goliath, despite the fact that everybody else was. Uh, look at verse 25. We see that he was not intimidated despite the fact, you know, no amount of inducement had raised up a, a champion yet. So the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and it should, shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Now God's completely left out of the equation. He's defying Israel. It doesn't say he's defying God like David later does. But they... They're, they're given incredible inducements, and yet if you do not have faith, no amount of inducements are going to make you take on those kinds of risks. David, in contrast, has a very God-centered view. Second part of verse 26, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David thinks this guy is no match for God, nor is he a match for the armies of God. And I think when we become intimidated by the things that are around us, we need to keep reminding ourselves that if God is for us, who can be against us? It will rouse up faith within us. And the, more, the bigger God becomes in our minds, the more our faith grows. And the more our faith grows, the more our vision grows of what can be accomplished. In fact, your vision is going to be so big that you're going to be able to say, hey, even if God wills for me to lose my life, 
Nothing is going to be able to stop the victorious advance of the church of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what Jesus said? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's what Romans 8 says. It says you ought not to be intimidated even by the giant death. He says in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So we're not talking about comfort here. Some people apply this in a, in a self-centered way. We're talking about the triumph of Christ's kingdom. Fourth principle that I see here is that the scriptural vision that flowed out of his faith helped David to see opportunities where others saw only a giant. Gave him, you could just liken it to, to, to being entrepreneurial in the spiritual realm, okay? He sees opportunities that everybody else is missing. Verse 26 highlights two of those opportunities. And the first one may seem just a little bit mercenary to you, but uh, let's read it. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Now, most people think, okay, David has not heard the words that they've been saying amongst each other in verse 25. He's going to hear them in in a sec. Uh, But nobody else has taken on Goliath, and he's thinking, what? Nobody's taken on Goliath? Okay, maybe, maybe there's an opportunity here for me. So he asks, okay, what's going to be done for the person who takes on this guy? And uh, he wants to know what is in it, not just for, uh, you know, the army as a whole. What's in it for me? And some people think, boy, that seems pretty mercenary. That seems pretty selfish. I really don't think so. Knowing David's heart, he does not see finances, power, prestige, any of these things as things that cannot be used for the advancement of God's kingdom. I think he sees all of life as being able to be used for the advancement of God's kingdom. So he sees an opportunity here that other people uh, have left. Some people say, man, you ought to, you know, Christians really need to be poor and they ought to turn down opportunities like this. I I just (laughs) don't buy that. He sees this as opportunities for expanded influence. What about you? When you are looking at the discouraging things in America, do you see just the giants, the discouragements, the impossibilities out there, or do you see the opportunities that are available? You know, there are some people who are just way discouraged over how evolution has taken over almost every part of life. Uh, Evolutionists uh, get creationist uh, people fired or not able to be hired and they won't publish their stuff and it just seems like they are triumphing all they can see is the negative but i am praising the lord that aig answers in genesis um cri creation research institute is that right creation research and cmi i think it is anyway these creationist organizations they're saying we're having more success in these days than we've ever had before in, in causing people. These are exciting times, they say. They're seeing the opportunities, not just looking at the giants. Some people are very discouraged. They say, there isn't anything that the Republicans or the Democrats are doing that can solve the problems in America. And we're saying, yeah, exactly. We've been telling you this for decades. This is not the direction the Bible says to go. So what better time to showcase the Scriptures? What better time to say, hey, guys, you've never tried this option. You keep flip-flopping back and forth on two failed humanistic options. Why don't you try the biblical option? So we live in exciting times. And it is your faith and vision that will enable you to see opportunities where all others see is obstacles. 
Uh, One of the opportunities that David saw was the opportunity to take away the reproach of Israel. Now, the Hebrew word in verse 26 for reproach is heripah, which means shame. He found it absolutely shameful that the Philistines were still dominating Israel. Just shameful. He thought in one fell blow, we ought to be able to remove the shame and reproach from Israel. What are you ashamed of in America? Are you ashamed of biblical values because of what the world thinks? Are you utterly ashamed of the humanistic deviancy that is out there and say, Lord, I want your biblical values here. I want the shame and reproach that's come against the church with this humanism uh, to be wiped away. Another opportunity that David saw was the opportunity to show the impotence of the Philistine gods and the sovereignty of the God of Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Goliath is no match. He knew it. Unfortunately, the other Israelites did not yet know it. And we can pray that God would raise up Davids all across our nation who, as they go out, would stir up the desire and the vision and the faith of the church as a whole. But really, we need to start strongly developing a vision of faith in our children so that our children can start seeing opportunities and taking advantage of those opportunities where others see obstacles. Okay, there's two more points I want to look at before we quit. In verses uh, 28 through 30, we see that David's faith and vision kept David from giving up when he was slandered. He didn't worry about the naysayers because they were shortly going to be proven wrong, right? And there's no point in arguing with the naysayers who are out there uh, because if this really is a God-given vision, they will be proven wrong. You don't need to be driven. Some people are so discouraged by the naysayers, they eventually just give up on even implementing the vision that God has given to them. Look at verses 28 through 30. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Eliab, Eliab is more the English pronunciation, but Eliab is really putting David down. It's almost as if he's feeling insulted, as if it's exposing his lack of faith. And so what does he do? He goes on the attack. He demeans David's vocation. He slanders his character, and he completely dismisses and bunks his vision. Just amazing how relevant the scriptures are to the issues that we face today. I mean, you find this kind of thing happening all the time. It's not, it's not just the world that debunks the visionaries. Christians debunk the visionaries. You see it on the web. You see it on blogs that people write. It's horrible, absolutely horrible. When God has given faith and vision to accomplish great things, here's my admonition. Take your cues from scripture, not from the naysayers. There are going to be plenty of people out there to shoot down your ideas, and there's going to be very few early adopters uh, who run with a good biblical vision. Very few. That's just the way life is. Don't worry about it. 
And don't worry about it if they start assassinating your character and arguing vigorously against you. Uh, Because that's the way life is too. It exposes their lack of vision and makes them upset and they're going to come after you. They're going to try to debunk what you are doing. And it doesn't matter because if you are right, the naysayers will eventually be proved to be wrong. Let them just see your fruits. Put the the Bible into practice and trust God with the outcome. I was looking at uh, the inventions that revolutionized the West. Almost all of them initially had their naysayers. Listen to the following things that people have said was absolutely impossible. In the Quarterly Review, March of 1825, it said, What can be more palpably absurd than the prospect held out of locomotives traveling twice as fast as stagecoaches? British Parliamentary Committee was uh, studying about, somebody had asked them to study about whether to use the light bulb or not, Thomas Edison's invention. 1878, they said, The light bulb is good enough for our transatlantic friends, but unworthy of the attention of practical or scientific men. Okay. Henry Morton, president of the Stevens Institute of Technology, said this about Edison's light bulb in 1880. Everyone, wow, that's a pretty wide statement, everyone acquainted with the subject will recognize it as a conspicuous failure. Uh, Here's a memo at the Western Union from 1878. Some people uh, actually date this memo 1876, so I'm not sure which one it is, but they said, this telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. The device is inherently of no value to us. That'd be pretty discouraging if you're trying to sell this biggest company, you know. This would be a great thing. It'd improve your business, and they'd debunk it. they say it's ridiculous. President of the Michigan Savings Bank advised Henry Ford's lawyer not to invest in the Ford Motor Company. He told him, the horse is here to stay, but the automobile is only a novelty, a fad. He told him, don't invest. You're going to lose your money. Uh, Even good scientific minds like Lord Kelvin, he's a hero of mine, great guy, but he could be a naysayer as well. As the president of the British Royal Society, he said in 1895, heavier than air flying machines are impossible. Now, what really surprised me is that even an open-minded man like Thomas Edison, I mean, he's a visionary, and a lot of people were debunking his stuff, but even visionaries can debunk the visions of other people. In 1895, he said, it is apparent to me that the possibilities of the airplane, which two or three years ago were thought to hold the solution to the flying machine problem, have been exhausted, and that we must turn elsewhere. So any one of us can shoot down visionaries prematurely. Uh, When Robert Fulton tried to sell Napoleon a steamboat, Napoleon said, What, sir, would you make a ship sail against the wind and currents by lighting a bonfire under her deck? I pray you excuse me. I have not the time to listen to such nonsense. (laughs) Might have helped him in his war, actually. Now, here's an interesting quote. There will never be a bigger plane built. And that was said by a Boeing engineer after the first flight of the 247, which only held 10 passengers, okay? Uh, Lord Kelvin reputedly said, and I haven't been able to verify this one, but it's, it's quoted everywhere. Lord Kelvin reputedly said, radio has no future. In fact, so ridiculous, at the time, so ridiculous did the idea of radio sound to some people that U.S. District Attorney prosecuted Lee DeForest for supposedly, quote, selling stock fraudulently through the mail for his radio telephone company, unquote. That was back in 1913. 
The government office issued a statement saying, Lee DeForest has said in many newspapers and over his signature that it would be possible to transmit the human voice across the Atlantic before many years. Based on these absurd and deliberately misleading statements, the misguided public has been persuaded to purchase stock in his company, unquote. And so they filed a lawsuit against him. Let me tell you, uh, you have civic officers even today that are coming against visionaries, Christian visionaries, aren't they? Of course, Lee DeForest, okay, they came against him on the radio. He had his own blind spots. He thought television was a hopelessly flawed idea for investment. He said, while theoretically and technically television may be feasible, commercially and financially, it's an impossibility, a development of which we need waste little time dreaming. Robert Millikan, American physicist and Nobel Prize winner, said in 1923, There is no likelihood man can ever tap the power of the atom. Okay? Now, I'm not going to read all of these. There's there's just tons that are out there, but I'll just give you one more. Even Ernest, Ernest Rutherford, shortly after splitting the atom for the first time, he said, The energy produced by the breaking down of the atom is a very poor kind of thing. Anyone who expects a source of power from the transformation of these atoms is talking moonshine. Okay, these are all Eliabs who are pouring cold water on visionaries. And you may be one of those Eliabs. You may be a person who likes to pour cold water on the visionary statements of other people. And if, you do, if you're tempted in that direction, I would caution you very, very, be very, very careful because you might be opposing a David. Okay. And uh, I think Eliab later uh, repented. I think he became a mighty fighter under David. But initially his bitterness, uh, and I think his bitterness was because he was overlooked by Samuel. Here he is the firstborn. Why am I not selected to be king? What's David doing, you know, being selected to become king? But anyway, his bitterness completely robbed him of a visionary faith. Bitter people do not have vision. It's just as simple as that. It robs them. And if you are an Eliab whose bitterness has robbed you of vision and you're trying to rob other people of vision, what I would encourage you to do is repent of that, cast your vision away, say, Lord, it's hard for me to be visionary, but this is my new identity in Christ. You have called us to live by faith, and this is what I choose to do. And uh, God can restore that in your life. Now, the last thing I want you to see is that this scriptural vision was infectious. It was infectious in others. In fact, even though I'm not going to spend much time on this, this is for me probably the most encouraging point uh, that I'm giving this morning. David's vision that sprang from faith was immediately noticed and admired by some in verse 31. Now, when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. There's something about a faith-driven person that attracts attention attracts admiration. Now, yeah, you're going to have a lot of people inside and outside the church who are Eliabs, and and they're not going to be attracted to it. They're going to be, think you're a nutcase, you know, just get over it. But there are going to be people who find a fire lit within their heart. They like this. And so you ought to be encouraged. Don't focus in the wrong area. It is infectious. And as he spoke these words of faith in verse 32, it set an irresistible course of events into motion. Look at verse 32. Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Let no man's heart 
fail. A visionary faith can bring incredible encouragement to the church of Jesus Christ. And I think ultimately our goal in all of this is to please God. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's a visionary faith. And Hebrews 11 says, you cannot please God if you don't have a visionary faith. You cannot please God. We must be convinced that our labors in the Lord are not in vain. Now, in the next couple of weeks, as we go through this chapter, we're going to be seeing some tests to faith. Last week, we saw one of the things that tests our faith is, are we going to be faithful in the small things of life, in the, in, in the Protestant work ethic? And in the future, we're going to be seeing, you know, we're going to be tested in courage. We're going to be tested in patience. We're going to be tested on whether we're willing to fight, to engage in, in the culture wars. But in conclusion today, let me just encourage you to be people of vision. If you have an energizing vision of what God's grace can accomplish in you individually, that God's grace can help you overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. It can make you victorious over sin. That is going to bleed over into the lives of your children. When you have an energizing faith of what God can do in your family, it'll take your family through those discouraging times. And when they fall down, it'll it'll lift them back up again. But you're going to be investing that faith in your family. When you have an energizing faith of what God can do in our culture of America and turning this nation upside down for King Jesus and it makes you run into the battlefield uh, to the front lines of the battle like David did, then what's going to happen is it's going to encourage others and there's going to be some momentum that will be built. But this is is a, a thing that Scripture promises of a growth from faith to faith. Now, of course, you can't have that vision unless you have the preconditions. So we're going full cycle right back to the introduction. You've got to have those first two points under the introduction. <clears throat> you have to be convinced that God's commands to win the nations and to teach them the law is a realistic, reasonable command. That's theonomy. Okay? You must be convinced that God's promises of the increase of His kingdom and of peace, there will be no end, whether it's individually or whether it's culturally, worldwide, that's reasonable. If you don't think it's reasonable, you're not going to be a part of the army to advance it. And so in your own life, when you are very uh, discouraged over your own sanctification and you want to give up, you're going to say, no, I refuse to give up. I am committing myself to sanctification because God has given me personal eschatology saying he who has begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. And I'm committing to walking in faith and not in discouragement. And then finally, you must be convinced that a biblical methodology that the Scripture gives is reasonable. Okay? That's worldview or apologetics. The same law promises and worldview that were foundational for David's visionary faith must once again become the foundation for the church's faith. But returning to the second point of the introduction, you must also have the power of the very Holy Spirit who gave those biblical laws, promises, and worldview. You've got to have a passion to know him and the power of his resurrection because faith does not just believe something intellectually. 
Imagine faith to be an arm that reaches. It reaches out and it receives the Holy Spirit and it receives His joy and it receives His wisdom and His power and finances and anything else that we need to advance His kingdom. It is very active in receiving. The difference between David and the rest of those Israelites was David was walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's the one that energized that faith. And we too must walk in His power. And if you don't know the power of the Holy Spirit, talk to me. I long to see every person in this congregation having an incredible vision from the Scripture and having that vision empowered and energized by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. May it be so. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your word and even uh, all of the examples in the Scripture of men and women and children of faith uh, who were not supermen or anything remarkable. They just knew how to lay hold of your scriptures and of your spirits empowering. And I pray that in our weakness, your strength would be made manifest. May we be a church of faith. May we be a church especially with a visionary faith. May it be an infectious faith, Father, that encourages all those who are around us. Bless this, your people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.